So hello, everybody. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. It's been a while, and we're back from the dead. And today, joining me, I have Sheldon Solomon, who is one of the founders or creators of the terror management theory. And today, we're basically going to talk about his theory and uh, philosophy and everything that led to this theory and the, the way forward. So welcome, Sheldon. Thank you, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you as well. And as I mentioned, I was just thinking right before we started that we met in the summer of 2016. And yes. I believe it was 2016, there was the, the time uh, perspective um, conference up in Copenhagen. And earlier that summer, I was introduced to the denial of death uh, by Ernest Becker. At, uh -huh. uh, yeah, yeah, it started, you know, in a conversation in a bar in Portland, Oregon with a professor from Lewis and Clark. And he just um, started talking to me about this book and it really elicited a lot of uh, interest. So how, how, did you, how did you get uh, introduced to this book, which kind of shaped your theory? And can you tell the listeners a bit about your background, your theories? Yes, certainly, Simon. Thank you. Um, I'm an experimental uh, social psychologist by training. And um, in graduate school, I had uh, two friends, Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski. And we were interested in uh, two questions that uh, were uh, drawing attention at the time. One question is, was just about self-esteem. Uh, William James in the first psychology book, Principles of Psychology in 1890 or so, uh, he said that self-esteem is as important for humans as is air and food for anything alive. Um, and so from minute one in social psychology, we knew that self-esteem was important, but we didn't really know what it is or why it was important or how it functioned. And then the other question that Jeff and Tom and I were interested in is how come people can't get along uh, with other people who, who don't share their beliefs about reality? And this question is central to social psychological discourse. So anyway, I got a job as a professor at Skidmore College. And in my first week at Skidmore College, uh, quite by accident, um, I was in the library looking for Freud and I bumped into Ernest Becker, or rather I bumped into three books right next to each other on the shelf of the library. Uh, one was called The Birth and Death of Meaning. And I opened that book, and in the first paragraph, Becker says, I want to understand why people do what they do. And I was like, yeah, me too. And then I opened the denial of death right next to it. And in the first paragraph of that book, uh, Becker said that um, it is the uniquely human awareness of death and our disinclination to accept that fact that underlies uh, a substantial proportion of human activity. And I remember in my gut being like, damn, um, uh, that, that bothers me a great deal, but I think that you're right. It kind of reminded me of my own longstanding disinclination to die. Uh, 
So to make a long story short, Simon, I, I read Becker. I, I was captivated by the simplicity and power of his claim, uh, which is very simply that uh, humans are like all other living creatures and that we're biologically predisposed to want to keep living. On the other hand, uh, we are uh, at our best a vastly intelligent creatures capable of thinking abstractly and symbolically to the point uh, where we can literally think of stuff that doesn't exist and then make it real. And one of the byproducts of our vast intelligence is self-awareness. We're so smart that we know that we're here. And Becker following Kierkegaard just says, well, if you're smart enough to know that you're here, that's awesome and dreadful. It's awesome to be alive and to know it. And it's dreadful to realize that like all living things, your life is of finite duration and that you too will someday die. And so what Becker insists is that if that was the only thing on our minds, I'm going to die, I could walk outside and get hit by a meteor, and I'm just an embodied animal, a breathing piece of meat, no more significant or enduring than a peach or a potato, uh, we wouldn't be able to stand up in the morning. And so according to Becker, uh, we manage existential terror by embracing culturally constructed belief systems that give us each a sense that life has meaning and that we have value. And that uh, whether we're aware of it or not, we spend most of our lives consciously or more likely quite unconsciously trying to maintain faith in our culturally constructed beliefs as well as confidence uh, in our value. Uh, and uh, one more notion, and then I'll stop, and that is that for Becker, uh, when you perceive yourself as a person of value in a world of meaning by meeting or exceeding the standards associated with the social role that you inhabit in the context of your culture, that's what he calls self-esteem. Uh, and um, so I think that's Becker in a nutshell. And the minute uh, we bumped into his books, we thought that he was onto something uh, of great importance. Yeah, I, I think that's a, an excellent way of summarizing Becker, even though I've, I've read only The Denial of Death and I found it uh, extremely interesting. I was surprised that uh, that book had received some pushback and um, I would say that, that you make, uh, yeah, you make great points in terms of the use, the, the use of uh, self-esteem and which is more prominently valued in Western societies, right? Um, yes. But, but just the, these meanings that, you know, this, this seek, the search for meaning that we have. And I think that most cultures have that, right? They have some kind of outlet that gives uh, people some explanation and the first thing that comes to my mind is traditionally religion but yes i'm sure there's uh, many others and what you know when you were saying you know if we were to have this idea or this notion that we're just basically you know hunks of meat and i would say that you know another way of looking at of looking at this could be that we've also greatly underestimated the, the rest of the natural world, meaning other animals, uh, other you know, living beings that we share the planet with. I think that um, this has been, we've overemphasized uh, fantasy and imagination, which I think are extremely useful 
aspects to, and if we want to talk about evolutionary usefulness of these things, they are they are uh, ex extreme. They're fundamental to our survival, without you know noting the the beauty as well of the rest of the of the living world. Yeah, Simon, that's really well put. And in Becker's view, um, and he puts it uh, quite starkly uh, when he just points out that, uh, yeah, we have as a species been in a uh, rather ardent effort to transcend death since the dawn of human history, in part uh, by detaching ourselves from nature and declaring ourselves to be superior to it and impervious to the effects of it. And, you know, just starting with the Judeo-Christian tradition uh, where humans are created in God's image and every other living thing is put here uh, for us to dominate and to exploit. Um, the, the bottom line for Becker is that nature is a problem because animals die and if we're part of nature, then we die too. And we know that there is some merit to that claim because in our experiments, uh, when we remind people that of their own mortality, uh, they in turn uh, become more insistent that humans are not animals and they become more uncomfortable with their bodies uh, things that would normally be pleasant, like having your foot rubbed or, or even engaging in sex, uh, become a whole lot less pleasant if death is on our minds when we're asked to partake of it. And so I, I do think that uh, you're quite right. We, uh, in the pursuit uh, of culturally constructed abstractions, uh, which do serve uh, to give us a sense of uh, stability uh, and order in, in order to impose meaning on the world. Uh, but um, there is a, a real danger. Uh, and again, Becker recognizes this when in pursuit of an abstraction, uh, we actually are taking flight from the reality of our condition, which is that we're embodied animals. We pay the price and so does the natural world. Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really important. And I would say one thing that maybe to introduce the listeners to your theories. So basically from, from my understanding of it, your, your theories of terror management came, came about by looking at the philosophical uh, books and philosophical ideas of Ernst Becker, who was, I believe, an anthropologist, correct? That's right, correct. But, but he, he was quite well-versed in psychoanalytic thought. So he, he really had a good understanding and a good appreciation of uh, Freud, of Otto Rank, and somewhat of Jung, uh, although he, I, I, didn't see, I didn't see so much Jungian um, analysis or, or uh, you know, analysis of his theories. But I would say that he took the Freudian and the psychoanalytic perspective and gave it an existential, um, an existential uh, slant, right? An existential understanding to it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And no, I you go ahead, Simon. I'm sorry. No, no, sorry. And I just wanted to just to introduce the listeners. So 
basically you were trying to uh, test the, the, the soundness of these philosophical outlooks from the scientific perspective. That is precisely right and really well said. So Becker was an anthropologist and in the 1970s and 1960s when he was writing, he managed to annoy everybody. So he had these really big ideas, concerns about death, influence everything that people do. And he annoyed the philosophers and psychoanalysts, some of them, uh, because he deviated from psychoanalytic tradition. So I, I like how you put it, Simon. He took psychoanalysis and put an existential spin on it. Uh, but, and then he annoyed the academic psychologists because they're like, this is raving speculation. You're deriving your ideas from religion, from psychoanalysis, from philosophy, and there's no evidence for these notions. And more importantly, there's no way that you could provide evidence for them because they're based on the Freudian assumption that a lot of what goes on uh, in terms of meaningful psychodynamic activity is quite unconscious. And so that's where uh, we came in. Uh, we were young. We had PhDs in experimental psychology. And we said, let's, let's try it. We didn't see why, in theory... Uh, we couldn't use scientific methods uh, to assess the merits of these ideas in that fashion. Now, let me be clear. I'm not proposing uh, that, that any idea stands or falls just on empirical evidence. I, I think these ideas uh, are potent and profound and stand um, on their own, as it were. On the other hand, I am trained uh, in an empirical tradition. I, I do feel that great ideas um, will, uh, are often such that you can produce evidence in accord with them. And so that's what we've been doing for almost 40 years. We, we had one line of research where we established that self-esteem does indeed reduce anxiety. Then we have another paradigm that I already alluded to, where we remind people that they're going to die and where we show uh, that when we do that, people cling tenaciously to their cultural worldviews and uh, they strive diligently, in fact, quite ardently to increase their self-esteem, right? And then we have a third paradigm uh, where we challenge people's cherished beliefs or we attack their self-esteem. And what we find in, in those conditions is that unconscious death thoughts come more readily to mind. Now, we can talk about uh, specific applications of those paradigms, but basically there's now more than a thousand published studies in accord uh, with the view uh, that self-esteem buffers anxiety in general and about death in particular. Uh, the reminders of death instigate what we call cultural worldview defense and self-esteem striving. And then if you undermine somebody's cherished beliefs or self-esteem, that brings what we call implicit death thoughts cascading to the forefront of your psychological landscape. 
Oh, this is this is all absolutely fascinating. And I wanted to ask, did you guys uh, replicate these studies also in non-Western countries or various populations or around the world? Um, uh, no, but others have, Simon. So that is an extraordinarily important question, particularly these days when uh, academic psychology uh, is being attacked uh, because of the difficulty of replicating uh, any effect that's produced uh, in the lab. Um, what has been established, so for example, when we remind people that they're going to die, you like your own people more and you dislike people who are different. So Christians in the United States reminded of their mortality uh, they like Christians more, and they hate Jewish people. Um, in India, if you remind Indians of their mortality, uh, they like Indians more, and they hate Pakistanis. Right? So that basic effect has been found in more than 25 countries by independent researchers uh, on five continents. So it has been uh, found to be quite robust. It's been uh, what we call mortality salience effects have been obtained in uh, kids as young as 10 or so, uh, and in elderly folks who are in their 80s. And so, um, yes, these effects appear to be uh, quite robust uh, across time and space. Wow. And I guess that, you know, that, that really opens a whole Pandora box of philosophical questions to be asked when you when you hear something like that when you hear uh that this you know that this reminder this this death salience or these these reminder of our own finite uh being our our finite lives that are finite <laughs> excuse me, that that we are uh, that we become more closed-minded and more loyal to the group uh and hostile to others and it, it makes, you know, it makes me wonder if this idea of tribalism and division isn't, isn't also something that is in some way uh, evolutionarily useful or has been, like not, yeah. not, not ideally to the society we're trying to create, right? Yeah, Simon, let's, let's stop and dwell there because that was brilliant and really important. Uh, it, we are fundamentally tribal and territorial creatures. Uh, and what the evolutionary psychologists tell us is that some of this is just an unfortunate and unintended result uh, of uh, cultural evolution. Uh, and so I'm thinking of a, a guy, he's an anthropologist. His name is Joseph Henrich, and he's the, I believe, the head of the anthropology department at Harvard these days. And he wrote a book about cultural evolution where he points out that the reason why humans are so different than other creatures is not that we're so much smarter, because as individuals, we're not that much smarter than a crow or a dolphin or, or a primate. What we've got going is that we're uber social, hyper cooperative creatures who over time uh, accumulate knowledge that we pass on. And so, you know, we're the lucky beneficiaries of thousands of generations. Uh, of cultural knowledge that's acquired in a specific time and place. And, and the argument is that 
there's got to be a little bit of outgroup hostility built into that package uh, of cultural affectations. Uh, because literally, uh, if you're a member of a culture, uh, you might be engaged in cultural practices that evolved over thousands of years, and you don't even know why it is that what you do in the context of your ritual practices, why it is uh, that that activity may be so beneficial. Now, I don't know if I'm making sense, Simon, but what these guys say is that uh, you have to privilege your own. You have to think that your people and your beliefs uh, are a little bit better uh, because you have to preserve over time cultural traditions that are smarter than you are. Right. And so back to the present, though, and we know that when people are threatened, uh, that that slight touch of ethnocentrism is amplified exponentially. And so what may have started out as a, 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 an evolutionarily sound way to preserve the integrity of one's own culture in modernity has metastasized into a death-denying inability to accept anybody who's different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And of course, another thing that uh, we we generally uh, we generally don't appreciate enough is how much uh, conformity and imitation is part of the human experience. Yes. And, yeah, we, we imitate uh, so much. So these cultural practices are built upon each other. And, and lately, you know, we're living in such a, you know, hyper technological age, just the fact that we're able to to have this this conversation across continents is is uh, is is proof of that. But I mean, what do you think about that in terms of just how much how much we imitate and and this and you mentioned self esteem. So you know, it's kind of a paradox because we are so conformist as a species and so yeah. imitating and imitative, but yet we we have the need for the self esteem or for this uh, uniqueness. Right. Yeah. No, there you go. It, it raises some very thorny issues. You know, the, in Psychobabble, Simon, they, they say that humans are over imitators. Uh, it's really we imitate to the extreme. So, uh, you know, if a two year old infant and a two year old monkey are watching a human do something, let's say to use a stick to open the box. And the human, uh, before using the stick to open the box, let's say the human puts the stick down and claps their hands three times and then picks the stick up to open the box, the monkey will just pick the stick up and open the box. In other words, they recognize what's relevant and not for the goal in question Human infants don't do that. They over imitate. They'll put the stick down. They'll clap three times. And if they see another infant just go to open the box with the stick, they'll be like, what are you doing? You didn't clap. And the argument, again, is that we need to be built as over imitating, hyper conforming creatures because 
Um, what overrides our own individual predilections is the need to maintain the cultural worldview across generations. Fine. But what that does, ironically, is to reduce most of us to culturally constructed meat puppets in that we derive self-esteem uh, by adhering to the standards of value that are intrinsic to the roles that we inhabit. And so, yeah, you're quite right to note that uh, our, what seems to be a situation where somebody is autonomous and self-confident, um, it's still the case that they're marching to the beat of somebody else's drummer when you get right down to it. Yeah, that's, and this is, uh, this is something that could help People just just being you know just being aware of this not maybe not over judging ourselves or not uh, being too harsh on ourselves but just the fact that this is part of our human nature. Uh, now I want to ask about uh, about the outliers. If you have any outliers in your research, uh, people who weren't so impacted, like didn't have these um, these uh, you know harsh responses yeah. uh, to, to the deaf, uh, to, the, to, to what the stimuli or the reminders. Yeah, nice, Simon. Great question. So there's always outliers. That's, uh, you know, one of the things that is often difficult when talking about these ideas. You know, when I say, oh, this is the way people are. Yeah, I'm referring to the average person. And as is often said in my world, the average person doesn't exist. And so this always raises the question of boundary conditions. And there's a few things that we know. One might be fairly obvious, and that is that people who have high self-esteem, not to be confused or conflated with narcissism, which is the pathological absence of genuine self-esteem, uh, but someone uh, with actual self-esteem when they're reminded of their mortality, they don't despise somebody who's different. Right? Another factor that matters is your own uh, political beliefs. It's people who define themselves as liberal or progressive, remembering that the word liberal means tolerant and open-minded, when you remind them of their mortality, they actually like people who are different more, they become more tolerant or open-minded, right? So that's another direction, but let's remember that there's a big heritability component that underlies political beliefs. So it's not like you can tell somebody to change their political orientation. So we've got self-esteem, uh, we've got a progressive or liberal uh, worldview. Uh, there's recent work uh, that has shown uh, that folks that are steeped in Eastern traditions like uh, meditation uh, in the West, this has manifested as mindfulness. Uh, those folks are less affected uh, in terms of defensive reactions to mortality salience. There is some very promising work that I'm very fond of uh, uh, recently uh, showing that people that are humble and grateful uh, are also um, less defensive uh, in the wake of uh, reminders of their mortality. So those are just a few uh, 
conditions that produce uh, outliers. And uh, lots of researchers are actively involved at this point trying to figure out what other factors might be in this regard. Yeah, wow, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, that's because I, I've often read about, you know, the main, these main findings and uh, also the, the ideas about authoritarianism and right-wing authoritarianism um, and, and also the religious component. Because I, you know, I, I always thought in my head, well, okay, let's say there's a, a Christian who's a very, very fundamentalist type of Christian. Well, you, you need to have, as, as William James also pointed out, there's a certain personality type that gravitates towards that, right? And it's, I think it's similar with um, political perspectives. You kind of, you know, and I like what you said about liberalism in the, in the original sense of the word, uh, what it means. I think that's something that people are have innately. I mean, it's based on life experiences and, and all that, but it, it's something that is just like, you know, you're, you're either, uh, you, you might find some open-minded conservative who is really a liberal. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just been uh, brought up maybe in, in that uh, tradition. But anyways, that's, that's absolutely uh, fascinating. I want to ask you, where is your, uh, where's your research gravitating towards now? Because I know you've touched upon uh, time perspectives as well and the influence that, um, you know, death reminders also have on how we experience time or how it influences our time, our time perspectives. Yes, Simon. So uh, when we met, it was at the conference uh, about time, which I, I thought was just fascinating. And I had just started reading uh, Heidegger's Being and Time. Um, you know, I had been, you know, kind of dodging. It's a big book. So I avoided it for 40 years. Uh, and I found um, Heidegger's view of time to be exciting. And I also found his analysis uh, of uh, just being in general uh, to be very compatible uh, with Becker to the point where I wondered why um, he doesn't, he didn't spend more time uh, on Heidegger. Becker does, in The Denial of Death, explain why he doesn't uh, go into Jung as much as he might have. And he, he just said Jung is well known, so I want to talk about Otto Rank. But anyway, he never talks much about uh, Heidegger, who made this distinction between, uh, you know, inauthentic and authentic time. Uh, Heidegger said, well, uh, you know, there's two kinds of time. There's the time that we're very familiar with, where we dice the world up into these symmetrical packets of seconds and minutes and days, you know, and and months and years, and uh, and where time unfolds in an orderly and linear fashion, where at any particular moment, here I am right now. And I just got done with the past. He calls that nevermore as I'm about to bump into what comes next, which he calls not yet. And uh, Heidegger's point is like, yeah, that, that kind of time it is, it's good for like train schedules uh, and, um, you know, for figuring out how much you have to pay somebody for working. 
but it has very little to do uh, with our subjective experience of time if we're not riddled with existential anxiety. So Heidegger thought that if we were threatened existentially, uh, that we go right into this kind of linear time. Uh, and I'll explain why uh, in a bit, Simon. But then he's like, yo, uh, in reality, uh, our experience of time is much more subtle and complex and certainly not linear. It'd be more like a Mobus strip, if anybody knows uh, what that looks like. Because Heidegger's point is that at any moment in time, uh, you're anticipating the future because you're about to, you care about whatever's gonna, about to happen, but your anticipation of the future is based on things that have happened to you in the past. Uh, and I call it back to the future now, that at any given moment, Heidegger calls it our situation, that where you are right now uh, is an indication of what you're going to do next. But what you're going to do next is always ultimately determined uh, by what's happened uh, in the past. Uh, and uh, what Heidegger says, uh, you know, pretty much is that uh, when death is on our mind, uh, we revert back to uh, these orderly chunks of time, because in his view, when somebody says to you, you're going to die, most of us will say, of course, I'm going to die. But then unspoken in the back of our heads is always, I'm going to die at some vaguely unspecified future moment. Uh, and But Heidegger's point is that that's death denial, because you're just sticking some chunks of symbolic time between you and your inevitable death. Uh, but if you're living authentically, you realize that, I realize, let's say, that a planet could crash through my office window and vaporize me in the next 10 seconds. Uh, and that if I get to the point where I realize that my death is always potentially impending, uh, that that creates a different take on life and which Heidegger explained by saying, you know what, if you're living authentically, uh, you always have plenty of time. And I like that thought. Uh, I try and remind myself of that when I'm always saying to myself, I don't have any time. Yeah, that's uh, beautifully put. And I, I think that, you know, the, the idea here, as you've pointed out with how Heidegger was explaining this, this idea about this, you know, postponing or having this idea oh, that it's, it's in the future, it's at an undisclosed time. It's almost like you're putting a distance, uh, you're putting a space between, let's use the Becker view, the illusion you're defending, right? Exactly, that's right. Yeah, and, uh, and this, the, the demise and versus, you know, being aware of this reality and being really like embodying this. And I'd like to, point out that, you know, if, if you look at ancient uh, mystery traditions and initiatic orders, uh, you constantly run into, uh, besides like the, these sayings that you have, like at the Temple of Delphi in, in uh, Greece, you know, know thyself, but you constantly have these uh, reminders of death. You have the skulls, you have, you know, you have the hourglass. And I think that, um, that is really the idea when somebody, uh, and this is also a cultural 
uh, a cultural construction that I think we are missing in, in our day and age. The sense of uh, this idea of, of initiation and being exposed to uh, to these uh, to these you know to these things, um, I think is missing, and we can see it uh, in our culture. And I I when when you were talking about you know people the outliers before, uh, and, and you mentioned people who meditate, I re- I was reminded of uh, of a a practice uh, in Japan where they meditate upon a skull or they meditate upon uh, a body that is decomposing and it's often even been said that meditation is the practice it's practicing death and i know it sounds scary for some people but if you think about it it's about you know coming to peace uh, coming to peace and to just being prepared for 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 this in the end No, Yes, Simon, those are, I mean, all very fine points. Uh, You know, Socrates said to philosophize is to learn how to die. Uh, And, you know, throughout history, the Tibetan book of the dead or the tradition of medieval monks, you know, working um, with a skull. um, Yeah, the whole idea uh, was to encourage not like a fleeting death reminder, like in our studies, uh, but rather a protracted and conscious contemplation with one's mortality. Uh, So the argument goes that you get to the point like the meditators, uh, where your life is enriched by virtue of having, uh, as Camus put it, he said, come to terms with death, thereafter anything is possible. Uh, that, yeah, this has been known for quite some time. Similarly, as you put it, Simon, right now, yeah, we are, as a culture, um, arguably the most death-denying in the history of Earth. Many of us uh, have never seen a dead body. Um, In the United States, uh, people spend more money trying to not look old than we spend on education. Um, people, a lot of people don't even see old people in the United States. They, they move to Florida uh, and um, we just go to enormous lengths to pretend uh, that death is an unfortunate anomaly that those of us that are sufficiently clever will somehow be able to avoid. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting because I've actually come up and close to this in terms of talking with researchers and people who are uh, working on these life extension projects and really believe that they will one day achieve immortality and through biological means. I know there's people studying because, because, you know, they say, well, you know, why is that? Why is death have to be inevitable when some species technically are, you know, regenerate their cells? Um, Yeah. And, and that's the, the argument for me. It's, it's, I've always wondered uh, how much of a death anxiety uh, these people have that they want to, well, you know, want to get out of the, the, the natural human cycle and natural, to me, natural cycle in general, right? Yeah. I mean, that's I right. Yeah. I don't know how familiar you are with these uh, researches. 
Yeah, very much so. And again, with all due respect, um, I agree with you. Uh, I am, uh, and there's a middle ground because I like being alive. I'm 67 years old. I would have been long dead for most of human history. And I appreciate uh, advances in modern medicine, some of them as a result uh, of like Taoists and alchemists, you know, trying to turn lead into gold. Uh, and so, um, but uh, there are some folks that, you know, they take 300 different pills a day so that they can supposedly live forever, or they want to take their uh, individual identity and upload it from their bodies to some Google cloud. And yes, I see that as thinly veiled death denial. And I have pointed out in my conversations with some of these folks uh, that, you know, that's why back in the day when you read about, uh, you know, the gods in ancient Greece, yeah, they were immortal and they were bored and petty and, and banal. In other words, um, uh, the people in favor of living forever, um, I, I see that as um, quite unfortunate because that it, that's unnatural. Uh, you know, what's natural for all living things is that you, you have a start, you have a life, and you have an end. And I, I like how the Epicureans put it, which is that, uh, yeah, life would be monstrous as an open-ended activity of infinite duration. It would be no more satisfying than a book that never ended, uh, no more satisfying even uh, than a meal that never stopped. And I think it was Lucretius who just said, why can't we uh, like a guest at a great banquet, just come to the point where you're able to say that was awesome. I've had enough and leave the table gracefully. And I, I like that as a metaphor. I think that's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it as well. Like uh, this idea of also, you know, and, and I guess it's, I can relate as well. I mean, I, I'm not saying just to be, you know, totally indifferent to the, to life exactly. and the natural, you know, to what, what you have to learn to, to appreciate it, but also to be aware. It's like the, the idea of the yin and the yang, right? If you have a beginning, there has to be an end. You can't have pleasure without pain. So I think that's really important. Now, um, I wanted to ask, are you, what's, uh, what's the latest uh, with your research right now? Is there something new that you guys are, that you and your team are looking at? You know, that's a, a great question, Simon. I, I say that being a little silly because um, I'm not sure what Jeff and Tom are up to right now, or a ton of great people, our original students, and then just other researchers. So I'll tell you a few things that um, I've been involved with. Uh, my preoccupation right now is uh, studying the role of existential anxieties uh, on political preferences. Uh, as you know, the world right now, Europe, as well as the United States, there's a 
a whole bunch of, um, you know, populist kind of right wing leaders that are either acquiring power uh, through the ballot box or uh, just fraudulent efforts to co-opt democracy. And so to make a short story long, we've been doing studies since the, the year 2000. Um, where we have demonstrated, as Becker argued, following Max Weber, uh, that in, in times of historical upheaval, when existential anxieties are aroused, we become uh, much more prone to support uh, charismatic leaders who proclaim that they're divinely ordained to rid the world of evil. So at, in 2004, we found that Americans didn't care for President George W. Bush very much, um, unless we reminded them of death first. In 2016, uh, Americans liked Hillary Clinton more than Donald Trump. Uh, but if we reminded our participants of death first, uh, then they liked Trump uh, a whole lot more. And so um, not to sound hysterical, but what is happening in the United States today um, is seems to me uh, eerily similar to what happened in Germany in the first few years of Hitler's reign. Um, I call former President Trump Orange Hitler uh, because I believe the comparison to be apt. And uh, what I see right now uh, are existential anxieties uh, really fueling uh, people becoming devoted uh, to these kinds of leaders. And so that's one area of research, doing some other work with some fine physicians where we're designing uh, existentially based uh, therapeutic interventions for traumatized healthcare workers because the pandemic ha has taken a great toll um, on the healthcare system. Um, I'm also very interested in the work on gratitude uh, and humility. Um, I have been interested in these ideas for as long as I can remember, but the first 30 or so years, Simon, we were just interested in demonstrating uh, the kind of negative effects of arousing death anxiety. And it was never about death for us. It was really about how can we leverage these ideas uh, to improve psychological well-being and foster social progress. So kind of in my twilight years, uh, I'd like to spend more time uh, looking at the more constructive, benevolent, or benign manifestations of existential concerns. Wow, that's quite, quite a bit there, uh, very interesting. Uh, I would say that, uh, in fact, like I, what, one thing that, I'm, that I would be interested in in terms of this research would be exactly the last part about the pandemic because you, you mean you know the the germ it's called the germ stress theory or uh, yeah because that also the idea the fear of contamination and uh, disease also elicits this kind of intolerance and this type of authoritarian and tribal attitudes so uh, that's one uh, one issue that I've found very concerning uh, and also. In my view, uh, you know, you've you've compared like the people who would be more, let's say, um, aroused or attracted to to the messaging of somebody like Donald Trump, especially 
when it's, uh, you know, anti-immigrant rhetoric or something like this versus, you know, what I would be interested in seeing is the personality differences, let's say, between somebody who's more into this type of messaging and fear of outsiders versus, you know, those that have extreme fear of this pandemic. And I'm not saying this is uh, not a serious issue, but you, you know what I mean? It seems to me that there's there's a poss there's possibly two personality types that, that are more, let's use the, this often abused term, triggered by either like the threat of, uh, or the fear of, uh, of foreigners versus the fear of becoming infected and where it's exaggerated. Yeah, well, that, that's a, a great point. Um, so there is some work and I can send this to you um, that's a little eerie because yeah, the fear of foreigners is connected to this fear uh, of contagion or disease. And uh, so in the United States, you could, prior to the last election, predict support uh, for Trump by the rate of death in the area. So just like um, one would predict, the, the more the virus was prevailing, the higher the death rate, the greater was the support for Trump. And then think about the irony, because here's Trump saying the virus is not a problem. It'll just go away. Masks are for weaklings. Don't keep your distance. Just lick the guy next to you. So here, think about the perverseness of this psychodynamic pretzel, where uh, when you're anxious, that makes you more militantly supportive of Trump, who is telling you to not wear a mask or stay away from people. Uh, and that is more likely to make you sick and die. So here we are in a death spiral where existential anxieties make people more likely to follow someone who A, doesn't care about them, and two, has no qualms about killing them. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't have expected that in terms of the, the correlation, but it's, and it is, you know, I've, I have, um, I haven't read anything about that, but it's absolutely fascinating. I was wondering if, um, you know, if there are differences like in personality of people who are more afraid of contagion versus foreigners, but it seems like you're, you're saying that they're, they're two things are connected. No, I, I think there are though differences, Simon, because the folks that respond more vigorously to the death reminders and who would have stronger fears of contagion, that they would be, um, uh, but would identify more as political conservatives. And work has established that those folks uh, do have higher levels of baseline death anxiety and are more uncomfortable in ambiguous situations. Um, but let's emphasize though, that that's not necessarily a flaw because these are inherited traits. And so uh, there's gotta be some benefit of having some folks who are tolerant and open-minded. There must also be a benefit of having folks who are hypervigilant and resistant to change. And so 
really the key is how do we get some kind of evolutionarily stable strategy uh, where we've got a combination uh, uh, where we hit that sweet spot because if nobody was liberal, we'd all be sitting on the floors of caves like we were a couple of hundred thousand years ago. And, and if, if nobody was conservative, then when somebody has a stupid idea like drilling a fucking hole in your forehead so you can have an asshole on your forehead, other people will be like, that's probably not going to work. So if everybody was liberal or everybody was conservative, we'd be dead. Uh, we need a little bit of both. Yeah, I think I completely agree with that. I think that's an important notion that we seem to be forgetting. And, you know, there's talk about polarization. And I think it's more about this disconnect and lack of appreciation for exactly what you just pointed out, that we, we have, there is a reason for these ways of being, these ways of living. And I guess it, it's the, the, the sweet spot, the balance would be uh, a, a culture of respect, though, a culture of um, that that can be, um, you know, where there's courtesy among differing points of views as well. And I think uh, that is a big step forward that I, that we're kind of uh, regressing from. Ab absolutely, Simon. And, and again, well put. Um, it, it starts uh, a culture of respect. Let's coin that term because that's the polarization that we're seeing everywhere, I would submit, is the direct result of having lost that uh, as a superordinate consideration. Um, you know, if, if we start off by saying that we're all human beings, uh, and we're already saying, OK, we have a basis uh, of similarity within which we can have differences and often be very spirited in our defense of our views. Uh, but in fact, democracy uh, isn't, it doesn't work if everybody agrees. The whole point is to have civil disagreement, but it has to be civil disagreement based on an overriding recognition of our commonality uh, as citizens of a particular group and it's by virtue of our overriding respect that we are able to take issue with each other in a fashion that doesn't imply that you're an inferior form of life if you happen to disagree. And that's where we have gotten to, I think. Yes, absolutely. And that's the, the key there is to avoid dehumanizing and uh, othering too much you know when you other others <laughs> you are That's right. you're creating uh you're creating problems but i i would say one uh last question which may seem a little bit uh random or not random but um maybe they this is asked to you all the time but what is your spiritual take and second do you believe in the immortality of the soul or is it just another uh, useful illusion. Um, I think it's a, a useful illusion. Um, my my take is that um, I'm 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 like a, I'm big on the Epicurean view these days. Uh, you know, which is okay. Uh, I am inextricably ensconced in a physical carcass composed of atoms that have been here since the dawn of 
the origin of the universe. Uh, and I'm in momentary possession of these atoms, which will uh, uh, nanoseconds after my demise uh, begin to decompose and to rejoin uh, the rest of the atoms of the cosmos in a playful dance until they rematerialize uh, as a clump of dog shit or maybe a lizard or a carrot or maybe another person. And I find uh, that to be very comforting. I don't know if it's because I'm, I'm getting old, but um, yeah, I take great comfort in my radical insignificance. Uh, you know, I'm a respiring piece of carbon-based dust, you know, born in a time of place, not of my choosing. I'm here for a tiny amount of time and, and then um, uh, slide off uh, into the, the, you know, cosmos, into the abyss and uh, life kind of goes on. Now, I hope when push comes to shove that I actually have the grace and dignity to exit on those terms if I knew that the end was near, but that's my take on it for right now, Simon. Great, thank you. And I have to say, yeah, this is, uh, the Epicurean perspective is, I, I mean, it's not one that I live by so much. I'm more of a, I prefer the Stoic philosophy, but it's just everyone has a way of dealing with uh, the reality we're dealt, right? So, um, yeah. But I would say thank you. Well, thank you very much, Sheldon, for, for coming on and, and uh, sharing your perspectives and your views and research findings uh, with, uh, with my audience. Uh, I would like to ask if you would, if you would like to uh, share a place where, where, where listeners can find your work or uh, a website. Yep, uh, certainly. So I'm a kind of a butter churn remnant of yesteryear. So my name's Sheldon Solomon. I work at Skidmore College in Saratoga, New York. Uh, you can find me uh, like anybody uh, who would like and uh, feel free to email me uh, if you'd like to see any of the work that I have alluded to. Uh, I'd be happy to send you some. Uh, I don't have a website or Facebook or Twitter because I don't have an eight-year-old child in my household to show me how to use those things. So <laughs> <laughs> That's probably good. I, I have to say, I don't think you're missing out too much with the social media. I, I, I always recommend people to disconnect or at least disconnect to it as much as possible. It's, it has tremendous mental health benefits to not be on there. So yes, thank you. Thank you so much, Sheldon. It was uh, it was an honor to have you on and a pleasure talking to you. Well, for me too, Simon. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye now.